the free for all roundtable round two on round two today michelle morrow is here music teacher bob richardson news talk 1010 contributor senior counsel at national public relations deb hutton former advisor to two ontario premiers and deb you're hosting the rush this afternoon i understand I am looking forward to it, two to six. I'm looking forward to it as well. Okay, I'll kick back at home and cook dinner and listen to you. Okay, so uh, let's begin with the minimum wage going up. And Bob Richardson, I'll start with you. Uh, this was represented as a calamity when uh, the minimum wage was supposed to go up the first time under Doug Ford, something that had been mandated by the previous government. Now the minimum wage goes up and nobody blinks. Yeah, I mean, look, the minimum, this conversation conversation has gone on for about 30 years. Uh, this is a small cost of living increase. Uh, uh, every time there's been a, a moderate increase in the last 30 years, the Canadian Federation of Independent B- Business pours gas on itself and lights a match. Uh, I don't I, I don't think it's uh, uh, I don't think it's worthy of that. Uh, this uh, this needs to be done. People deserve a living wage. Uh, even with this increase, this is well under a living wage. Uh, there is a uh, there is a cost to it for small business. There's no question about it, but it's something that has to be done and has to be done on a regular basis. Deb Hutton, your thoughts? Well, I'm somewhere between lighting my hair on fire and and embracing and, <laughs> and celebrating this. Um, Listen, this isn't a living wage for Toronto, and I don't think we should confuse minimum wage with a living wage, quite frankly. I understand, I heard your guest earlier, John, that that there are people who are living on minimum wage in this city, not students in their parents' basements or things like that. I get it, and it is very difficult. But despite some of the evidence to the contrary, I don't think you can deny that there is a cost to some businesses when this goes up. So what worries me is, as I said, we compare it to a living wage and we say that a minimum wage must be a living wage. And your guest this morning, John, said that would take us to $23 an hour in the city of Toronto. That's something that a lot of businesses couldn't afford for the job that they are paying this wage for. Michelle Morrow, it's arguable, I think, that with runaway inflation last year and still inflation now, that raising the minimum wage isn't even competitive, that there's probably a lot of employers that they're paying more because they can't find people to work. Yeah, and this is one of those times where we're really struggling to fill positions. Um, there, we're all seem to be at a, a loss consistently to get people to fill positions. And I used to get in this argument with my dad about how he's like, nobody has the right to say they have to live in Toronto, and it's like I get that. But if your job is there and you, um, and it's a job that perhaps doesn't pay that well, but it's a job that needs to be done, it's going to be it's going to disincentivize people to apply for work when they have to travel an hour, maybe an hour and a half for a minimum wage job that they can't even cover their own expenses. But having never run a company, I don't know how you can balance that. I just know it's really, we're not going to fill these jobs until we can find a way to make that work. Dalton McGinty doesn't speak out very often, but he did speak with the star as part of a feature they prepared this weekend about how the liberals could figure out a way to defeat Doug Ford. I don't want to spend too much time on this because it's a bit inside baseball, but I do find it interesting that McGinty's offering up advice. Deb Hutton, you've been observing and working in Ontario politics for decades. What do you make of this feature? (laughs) Well, just a a side note, Uh, 16 years ago today, I was in labor, and it was less painful than 20 years ago when uh, we saw the defeat of the Conservative government (laughs) and Dalton McGinty's victory. (laughs) 
Okay. So happy anniversary to McGinty and happy birthday to my daughter tomorrow, uh, who turns 16. Listen, I think the smartest thing that McGinty said in the article is that this isn't 2003. It is 20 years later. The landscape is different. The premier is different. Um, the soon-to-be leader of the Liberal Party obviously will not be Dalton McGuinty. And so I think there's always lessons. I'm sure my friend Bob will say a similar thing. Always lessons to take away from both victories and defeats. Uh, but it always, I think, is a cautionary tale to say this could be just like what we did in 2003. Yeah, Michelle Morrow, it may be a little bit like the uh, dog with the stake in the Aesop's fable. I mean, you know, to for Dalton McGinty to be charting a course to victory after he had to resign because people were so sick of him, maybe it's not so helpful. Yeah, I think we should always look back on political successes and failures and say this is like a moment in time and maybe we can learn from it, but there's no way we can actually replicate it again. And I was really impressed that he did, as you said, pointed that out in that article that it's not 2003. And I hope people don't think that we can do that again. Like it's, it's the times are totally different now. Yeah, Bob Richardson, that's one of the things. They always say, don't fight a new war the way the old war was fought. And I think the same is true in politics. I think anytime you do that, you generally tend to lose the election. Look, uh, Dalton McGinty was a good, uh, quiet, uh, hardworking premier. He had a good balance between policy and politics. That being said, it was for a particular era of time. He reflected that. It's not necessarily going to uh, carry uh, carry a lot of water for uh, for the next election. And I'd encourage people to take a look at that feature, because one of the things I think Dalton McGinty does point out, and he's spot on, is that the Liberals finally won when they actually had policies. Uh, let's talk about Ontario's gas plants. They were supposed to be a backup plan because you can fire them up in minutes and start generating electricity when there is demand. Now they're running all the time. Uh, Bob Richardson, we talked to, to somebody from Greenpeace earlier this morning who was saying we got to get more into renewables. Um, I'm not absolutely convinced. I'm actually pro-nuclear. Yeah, I'm pro-nuclear too as well. I think one of the things we've done well in Ontario for the last 50 to 70 years is nuclear power. And it's one of the reasons why we've been able to move the economy forward. So I think we uh, ought to continue with nuclear power. Uh, It's aging, uh, needs to be replaced. And when it needs to be replaced, we should do that. And uh, we should double down on nuclear. Michelle Morrow, one of the problems with nuclear is it's quite literally radioactive, but it's also politically radioactive sometimes. Yeah, we seem to focus on the negatives of nuclear more than the positives. Um, I loved when you talked to the Greenpeace gentleman and he brought up the idea of the small generators and he really brushed that off. And I think we're getting to this point where we have these plants, these gas plants where we just have them. So we're going to use them even if that wasn't the level they were intended at, as opposed to actually planning ahead and thinking, how can we avoid this in the future? We kind of get Toronto seems to get stuck in a rut of like what we have is good enough and we use it until we run it into the ground. And then we have no plan to get out of there. Deb, nuclear doesn't come cheap, but it is actually actually green. It it is very green. And listen, gas plants are greener than the coal plants that we phased out were. Right. I would just say to the Greenpeace folks, why is it that that plants, gas plants that were originally built to be what they call peaker plants, so just when we really needed a couple of hours a day, short period of time, have become essentially baseload? In otherwise, in other words, they are part of our overall energy mix. Well, the reason for that is because people are still not conserving 
the way Greenpeace would like them to conserve. So, you know, we have a need for this. We don't want to be in a situation of brownouts. They are relatively clean, as I said, compared to coal. So, I like, this is the world we live in. We're asking people to go to electric vehicles. We don't think that's going to have an impact on our baseload. Of course it is. So we need to continue to build more. And quite frankly, solar and windmills are not going to cut it. I don't know why they've pitched it, especially at this time, but the feds are pitching a $1 billion cut to defense spending. And uh, the defense minister told me furtively on Friday that it's not actually coming out of, you know, men and women and hardware. It's going to come out of bloat. Uh, Michelle Morrow, you actually are in uh, a family that is in the armed forces. So your thoughts? Yeah, I, w- I was reading the article and one of the, th- the main ways they said they were cutting was through consulting and travel. And it's like, I, I- if we're spending a billion or almost a billion on consulting and travel, then that's a whole other problem we need to discuss. But I don't understand how we can make these cuts over and over again and continue to expect our military to be able to support not just Canada's wants within the national stage, but also like what other countries within NATO are expecting us to do. The fact that we haven't met our, I'm sorry, uh, the fact that we haven't met our goal in so long uh, is a huge default on our side. I think it makes us look so bad. And then also there's trickle down effects where we can't get soldiers to, even in reserves, we can't get them trained because we can't offer them enough to quit their actual jobs to take their training. And then we're making these holes where we will not be able to fill them without without lots of time and lots of money. And Deb Hutton, by pure optics, when we're sending billions of dollars to Ukraine, which I think is something we should be doing, but then taking a billion away from our own military, it just doesn't seem to balance. Well, and remember, this is coming from the liberals. And like, I I am not going to crap on the liberals for trying to do some spending reductions because (laughs) they desperately need to do that. Uh, It strikes me, though, as really odd when you, on one hand, as Michelle says, says, hey, we're going to meet our 2% of of GDP target on on our NATO commitments. We're only at, I don't know, 1.2, 1.3%. And we're going to take a billion dollars out. I mean, Bill Blair can say that it's all just bloat, but come on, Uh, liberals are good at bloat, trust me, but I I really think that this is an odd decision for them. However, spending reduction's good. Yep. Okay, Bob Richardson. Yeah, this is goofy would be the best way I I would describe this process that I've I've seen so far. Uh, We should be trying to edge towards our our NATO commitments. Uh, It we're not hitting it right now uh, under the present government. We, we didn't uh, meet it under the previous government. So, I, I mean, that's something that we should be trying to do if we're going to be taken seriously as a member of NATO and on the international sca- uh, stage. There's lots of bloat in Ottawa. There's been a huge increase in the size of the uh, civil service in the last, uh, in the last uh, three or four years. I think one ought to uh, take a, a real good look at those uh, those hires, um, and that's probably one of the areas where you can find some bloat. Okay, and I did promise I was going to ask Michelle Morrow about her thoughts on the Jays going to the playoffs. You're always so excited about sports. <laughs> I think it's awesome. I think it's great. Like anytime that a, Tor- that a Toronto team uh, can go and do well in their in their respective sports, it's great. It's going to be good for the economy if we can make it out of these three games against the Twins, which we have won against the Twins recently in this season. So our stand our chances, I think, are good. But who knows? Any given Sunday. But here's hoping that we can actually get the games back to Toronto, and then we can see like the boost of people coming in and going out and partying, and hopefully not having a riot if they do initially win. <laughs> okay, thanks a lot. That's Michelle Morrow, Bob Richardson. 
and Deb Hutton. And yes, the first three games are going to be home games for the Twins. So the Jays have got to win in order to get back to Toronto for a home game. And Michelle's absolutely right. Then the money really starts. I mean, people probably go to bars to watch games, uh, you know, from the Twins' home town, which I'm forgetting, Minnesota? No. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, another really cool fact about the Jays is they really had a great road record this year, so hopefully mm-hmm. it'll continue in the playoffs. Okay, well, they are 3-for-3 three three against the Twins. Catch the roundtable, round one at 745, round two at 845. Weekday mornings on More in the Morning. News Talk 1010 Toronto.